Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Legalism or Liberty? All right, well, before we get to our passage in Romans 7, in a title, uh, the, the message, by the way, is Legalism or Liberty, Romans 7, 1 through 12. Before we get to Romans, we are actually going to take a look at the book of Exodus. So hold your place in Romans, turn back to the second book in the Bible, and that would be Exodus. We have to go to Exodus to see how God's people received God's law. Okay, and so Exodus, if you're new to the Bible, is the amazing story of how God delivered his people, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, how God delivered them from their cruel captivity um, in Egypt. And by the way, have you ever thought how many people, how many Hebrews came out of Egypt? Well, in Exodus 12, verse 37, it says that there were 600,000 men that were involved in the Exodus from Egypt. 600,000 men. And so when you include women and children, here's what you find out, that a, a minimum of two million plus people, two million plus Hebrews came out of their cruel captivity there in Egypt. And so you remember the story, they came out of Egypt with confidence, they traveled into the wilderness, they got to the Red Sea, right? And then all of a sudden somebody looks up and says, look, and it's the Egyptian army, right? And so God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And by the way, when you, when you study the, the book of Exodus, you see that sometimes Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so here comes the Egyptian army. Pharaoh has second thoughts. I don't want them to go. This is like our, our, our slave force. And so they're there. And so you got the two million plus Hebrews. You got the vast Egyptian army. And then you have this giant body of water called the Red Sea. And the people of God began to freak out. What are we going to do, right? And you remember how, how Moses uh, said, do not be afraid. There, so often in the word of God, you hear those words, do not be afraid. God doesn't want you and I to be afraid ever about anything. And say, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And Moses lifts up his rod, right? And all of a sudden, God causes a great wind all night from the east to blow, and it literally parts the Red Sea. Two million plus people go down into the sea. They're walking through it on dry ground. When you read, I think it's Exodus 14, there's water on the left like a wall, water on the right like a wall. They make it all the way through, and then the Egyptian army, talk about boneheads, they follow the Hebrews into the sea. You would think, if, if I'm the enemy and I see the sea parting, I'm out of here. I'm not going down in that thing. They went down into the sea. The children of Israel come out on the other side. Moses lifts up his rod. The sea comes crashing down, destroying the entire Egyptian army to the point where the next morning they see the soldiers' bodies floating up on the beach. That's what you call a miracle. Now, then these two million plus people traveled for three months further into the wilderness and they got to the Sinai wilderness. That's where they set up camp. 
after they set up camp, God told Moses, in a few days, I'm going to descend upon, upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, why in the world would God, almighty, eternal God, come down upon Mount Sinai? He did it because he wanted to give his law to his people. And sure enough, on the third day, God's presence engulfed Mount Sinai. And so please look at Exodus 19. That's the chapter we're going to look at before we get to Romans 7. Look at Exodus 19, verse 16. 1500 B.C., thereabouts. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of a trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. I mean, just put yourself in the sandals of one of these two million plus people. You're standing there before Mount Sinai. There's thunderclaps. There's lightning. The, the mountain is shaking. There's great smoke. Verse 19. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him. What's the next two words? By voice. God speaking. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so now we're going to skip to chapter 20, verse 1. And God, what's the next word? Spoke. Audible voice. God spoke all these words. And in verses 2, all the way through verse 17, he declares his will in the form of ten commands. Okay, and so we're not going to read all those verses. I'll just summarize them for you. God says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make or bow down to any idols. Number three, you shall not take the name of God, the name of God in vain. Number four, you will keep holy the Sabbath day. Number five, you'll honor your mother and father. Number six, you will not murder. Number seven, you will not commit adultery. Number eight, you will not steal. Number nine, you will not lie. And number 10, you will not covet. And so God literally, 1500 BC, literally with his audible voice, speaks to two million plus people in the form of 10 commands. Now let me ask you a question. Would you agree that the Ten Commandments are of monumental importance. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, good night. He gave it verbal. He came down himself on the mountain. He gave these commands verbally as the mountain is shaking, as lightning bolts are striking, as thunder is roaring, as the trumpet is blasting. You think God wants to get our attention? Yes. See, the law reveals God's character. The law reveals who God is. 
And so if the Ten Commandments, here's the lead-in to Romans 7. If the Ten Commandments are so important, why in the world, when you get to the New Testament, do you have the Apostle Paul making statements like, hey, follower of Jesus, you're not under the law, you're under grace. Now, in order to get that answer, we're done in Exodus, go all the way over to Romans chapter seven. What is the New Testament believer's relationship to the Old Testament law? Okay, you just went forward in your Bibles 1,500 or so years. We're now in the New Testament, first century AD. Again, here's the question. And by the way, how many of you guys consider yourself New Testament believers in Jesus Christ? Let me just see your hand. Okay, what is the New Testament believer's relationship to the Old Testament law? Okay, look at verse one. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has, what's the word? Dominion over a man as long as he lives, okay? And so Paul is gonna answer this question. What is the New Testament believer's relationship to the Old Testament law? He's gonna gradually give the answer, and here's where we start today. Point number one, we are subject to the law as long as we live. We are subject to the law as long as we live. That's the beginning of the answer here. And so whether you're talking about the Gentiles, remember Romans chapter one and two? Whether you're talking about the Gentiles who maybe didn't have the law of God on paper, but they certainly had it written on their hearts. They certainly had it in the form of their conscience. So whether you're talking about the Gentiles having God's law written on their hearts, Romans chapter two, verse 15, or whether you're talking about the children of Israel who had God's law chiseled on stone, which we just read about in Exodus chapter 20, okay? So whether you're talking about the Gentiles or the Jews, here's the truth. We're all subject to the law as long as we live. But there is a way that we can get away from the law's dominion over our lives. It's called death. And Paul uses marriage as an example of how this all plays out. Look at verse two now. He says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he, what? As long as he lives. But, if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, verse three, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an, what? Adulteress. God never mixes words and never pulls punches, by the way. So if she marries another man while her first husband's still alive, she will be called an adulteress, but if her husband, what's the word? dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Point number two, as Paul continues to give the answer 
of what is our relationship to the Old Testament law? Well, here it is. Death cancels the law's dominion over us. Okay, the answer is coming in a process here, okay? And so he uses marriage as an illustration. If you're married, here's what you need to know. You're in that marriage covenant for life. Wives, you are bound to your husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, then you're free. If he dies, then his dominion no longer is over you. Now, some of you right now are thinking, so that means if I kill him, because <laughs> I can read your minds. So if I kill him, then I'm free from his dominion, then I'm free from that marriage. Well, no, that's not what Paul's saying. Don't forget commandment number six, you shall not what? Murder. You shall not murder. And by the way, in the original, it's not kill. And so if you're one of our heroes, you served in one of the armed forces and you took a life on the battlefield, um, you're not a murderer. There's a difference between kill and murder. No, 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 just the opposite. You're a hero for defending your country. Thank, thank, thank the Lord for that. Okay, but back to the message. Okay, so you got this husband, if he dies of natural causes, or if he dies of an accident, or if he dies by someone else's hand, not your hand, wife, okay? Then you are free to marry somebody else. Does this make sense to you guys? Okay, but some of you now are thinking, but Pastor Mike, that's so hard. Okay, I'm just gonna ask you a question. Weren't you the one that stood before God and gathered witnesses and promised, I will stay with this man till death do, uh, till death do us part? Right, you're the one that promised. You're the one that entered into that covenant. No one was twisting your arm. Now, to be fair, we know that the, in the Bible there are some exceptions to this rule that marriage is for life. We know, obviously, adultery. Jesus gives that exception. We know Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 gives the exception of the abandonment of an unbeliever, okay? And so some of you are thinking, well, why isn't Paul talking about adultery or the abandonment of a believer, of, of, of an unbeliever here? It's because Paul is not giving a comprehensive teaching on marriage here. He's just using an illustration of marriage to make a point. What point? Look at verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become, what's the word? dead. You have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be, what's the word? Married to another, I love this, this is so awesome, married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Next point, because we died, our marriage to the law has ended, and our marriage to Christ has begun. All right, so when you, whenever that was in your life, turn to Jesus Christ in faith, what happened is at that moment, the Holy Spirit, remember this from Romans chapter six, baptizo, he spiritually immersed, he joined, he united you with Christ. And so again, if this is you, and this is Jesus, when you, 
were converted, here's what happened, right? The Holy Spirit took you and immersed you spiritually. He united you with Jesus so that when uh, Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. And when Jesus rose again, you rose again. All right, and so here's what happened. How many of you guys, um, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Let me just see your hand. All right, you died with Christ. You remember Romans 6.6? Romans 6.6, Paul says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away. And so when you were joined with Christ, you died, all right? And so follow the logic of the Apostle Paul here. Just like the widow in verses two and three in the marriage illustration, just like that widow was free to marry another man because death canceled her first marriage, so we are free to marry the risen Christ because death canceled our first marriage to the law. Now, for some of you, that went whoop right over your head. Okay, so I'm gonna say that again. Listen, please listen. Listen, if you meditate long enough on God's word, if you dig deep enough, there's gold nuggets that will set you free. So renew your mind in the word of God this morning, okay? Don't let this go over your head. I'll say it again. You died in Christ, so therefore, just like the widow in verses two and three, was free to marry another man because death canceled her first marriage. So you and I are free to marry the risen Christ because death has ended our first marriage to the law. Just like that that widow, right, and and her former husband who died, just like that guy no longer has dominion over her, so the law no longer has dominion over us. Now, this is the part where I really want you to want you to want you to get it here, okay? The law no no longer has dominion over us. And some of you right now are thinking this, but Pastor Mike, I thought the law was good. I thought God came down on Mount Sinai and and the the mountain was quaking and there was thunderclaps and lightning bolts and smoke and a trumpet blast. I thought God verbally gave his will in the form of 10 commands. I thought that's good. And according to verse 14, holy and, and just, right? And so why are we not under the dominion of the law? Does this mean that because we're no longer under the dominion of the law, that we don't have to obey God's law? Okay, listen, don't misunderstand in what way? Everybody say, in what way? Don't misunderstand in what way the law no longer has dominion over us. This is how the law no longer has dominion over us. Okay, well, I think it's the most important point of the whole morning. The law cannot commend us to God and it cannot condemn us before God. Let's be thinking Christians today. Let's engage our minds. Let's think this through. Does, Paul, does, does, does God want anybody to murder anybody? Does God want anybody to commit adultery? Does God want anybody to steal, covet, lie, <laughs> dishonor your parents? 
No, of course not. Okay? And so when, when Paul talks about how the law no longer has dominion over us, he's not saying we're free to disobey God's law at all. What he's saying is that the law cannot commend us to God when we keep the law, and it cannot condemn us before God when we break the law. Why? Because we're not under law, we are under what? Grace. That's the beautiful heritage of a born-again New Testament believer. First of all, the law cannot commend us to God. I looked up the word commend in the new Oxford American Dictionary. Here's what it means, quote, to present as suitable for approval, to cause to be acceptable. And so, so someone reads the Ten Commandments there in Exodus chapter 20, and they think, all right, if I can just keep the big 10 throughout my entire life, then I will be accepted by God, then I will be approved by God, then God will justify me, right or wrong? Yeah, you're gravely mistaken. You see, the law cannot save us, and the law can't even keep us saved. We're saved by Christ through and through. We're saved by Christ from A to Z. And so why in the world um, can the law not save us? Because no matter how well we keep God's law, we have sinned, and therefore, we deserve what? Death. Thank you. God, you guys are getting this. This is good. Right? So no matter how much we jump and, 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 and somehow in our, in our lives keep God's law, we are all sinners. Therefore, we all deserve death. Okay, so here's the question. What commends us before God? Our failed life? Yes or no? Help me out. No. What commends us before God is not our failed life. What commends us before God is Christ's perfect life. You see, Jesus saw that we were sinners on our way to hell, and so he came on a rescue mission, and he lived the life you and I could never live. He didn't just keep 10 commandments. He kept all 613 found in the law perfectly throughout his whole life. He never sinned one time. And so the beautiful truth of Romans, we already covered this, is that when we turn to Christ in faith, here's what he does, he imputes, he ascribes, he gives us his righteousness. This is good news. This is like going to class and sitting down on the first day and hearing the teacher say, all right, students, you all have an A in the class. Even before you take any tests, you all have an A. Now, if I'm a student in that class and I hear that teacher say, you all have an A before you even take a test, that teacher who is so kind and that teacher who is so gracious, that's going to motivate me not to sit around and flunk the class and do nothing. That's going to motivate me to do the best I can. You see, this is the response to grace. God, through our faith in Christ, says, I'm giving you an A. Nothing can ever change that. And what does that motivate you and I to do? It doesn't motivate us to say, fine, I'm going to break all 10. No, it motivates us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to live for the Lord. Is this making sense to you guys? See, this is New Testament Christianity here. 
Thank God for the A, thank God for Jesus. The law cannot commend us to God, only Christ's life can do that. And the law cannot, what's the next word? Condemn us before God when we break it. More good news. So if we do break one of the commandments, and by the way, uh, if you break one, you're guilty of all, just a little side note. But if we do break one of the commandments, right, the wages of sin is death. Okay, what's the good news? Christ came on that rescue mission. He not only lived the life we could not live, he also died the death we should have died. And so he hung on the cross, and he endured God's wrath against our sin. He died in our place. Therefore, Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus today, let me just see you raise your hand, okay? There's no condemnation for you. Why would God condemn you? He already condemned his son. I mean, does this not want to make you want to live for the Lord? What an amazing God we have, so gracious and so kind, right? And so here's the bottom line. Death has canceled our first marriage to the law, and now we're free to remarry. And so here's, we're gonna do something a little different today. I want you all to repeat these marriage vows. Completely on your own accord. If you don't wanna do it, that's fine. If you wanna do it, I want to ask you to say it, repeat after me like you mean it, okay? You ready? And say, okay, so say I and state your name. Someone say state your name. No, no, I mean put your name so I'll say I, Mike, and then you say I, your name, okay? So you ready? So I, Mike, take you, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, not until death do us part, but forevermore. See, that's exactly what happened when you turned to Christ in faith. You made a commitment to Christ for life. You died with him, so now you're free from the dominion of the law. The law cannot commend you before God. The law cannot condemn you before God. You're dead to the law, and now you are remarried. You're married to the risen Christ. And what's the result of this union with God? Look at the end of verse 4. What's the result of this marriage union with Christ? That we should bear, last three words, fruit to God. When the Spirit, listen to this, when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts, he impregnated us with new spiritual life. Listen, the law is not mandated upon us from the outside, a list of legalistic rules that we have to keep it in our own strength. No, that's not Christianity at all. When we turn to Christ in faith, the Spirit of God came inside of us and he impregnated us with new spiritual life. And the result of that, something beautiful is born. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy coming out of your life, coming out of my life, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, right? The nine fruit of the Spirit, descriptions of love coming, flowing out of our lives. That's the result of our marriage with Christ if you're really born again. Look at verse five. For when we were in the flesh, in other words, in our B.C. days, before our conversion, the sinful passions which were, please underline the word, aroused, stirred up. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to what? Death. There's no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. No, there's bondage, death. But, verse six, now, now that we've met Jesus, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. All right, so look at verse five again. Gotta make sure we understand this. For when we were in the flesh, in our BC days, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. In our BC days, when we were confronted by the law, what happened was that that law stirred up, aroused the sin nature that we received from Adam. That's why moms, when you tell your four-year-old, no cookies until after dinner, and then you walk back into the room later and there's chocolate chips smeared all over his little face. That's why when you're driving down 95 and you see the sign says speed limit 70 and you go 80, that's why, right, when you walk up to a fence and you see a sign that says no trespassing, what do you see? The wire is cut, the fence is pulled back and there's a worn path leading out into the woods. That's why when you're in a museum and you see some exhibit behind glass and the sign says don't touch the glass, and what do you see? Fingerprints all over the glass. When confronted by the law, right, in our BC days, it aroused our sin nature to transgress that law. Listen, in our BC days, here's the bottom line, if you're really honest, you didn't want anybody telling you what to do. Don't tell me what to do, mom. Don't tell me what to do, dad. I don't want these rules. Don't tell me what to do, police officer. Don't tell me what to do, boss. Don't tell me what to do, Facebook friend who's trying to preach to me on faith. Don't tell me what to do. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. And why did we have that mentality? Because we wanted to be in control. We wanted to be sovereign. We wanted to be God, right? But the good news is God is still a gracious God. He met us. He saved us. And look at verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Here's your next point if you're taking notes. Now that we're joined to Christ, we have a new power within us to overcome sin and serve God. Now, please don't raise your hand, don't answer out loud. But 
How many of you are in bondage this morning? How many of you are having a hard time overcoming sin in your life? And how many of you are very religious and you're serving God trying to keep a list of rules in your own willpower? You see, that is just the opposite of the victorious Christian life. Here's the, here's the truth, right? Our sin nature used to dominate our lives, but then Jesus came to the rescue. And so when we turn to Christ, again, when we turn to him in faith, the spirit came inside of us, and now we have a new power within us that'll help us to overcome sin. So now, listen, before in our BC days, we get some kind of law, and our, law, our, our, our sin nature is aroused and stirred up. Don't tell me what to do and do whatever we want to do. But now Christ has come in, and now we have a new nature. So now when we're tempted by sin, here's what happens. We have a new nature inside of us, a new power within us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power, as we yield to the Spirit, will help us say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Listen. I've experienced this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in my life. Not because I'm so good. Listen, before I met Jesus Christ, I failed and I failed. And I was a religious guy, so I got back up and tried harder. And I failed. And I got back up and tried harder. And I failed, right? And then all of a sudden, I met Jesus and the Spirit came inside of me. And now, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but now when I'm tempted by sin, not because of me. This is not bragging here at all. But now that Christ lives inside of me when I'm tempted by sin, here you go, son. Look at this apple. Look at this forbidden fruit. It's going to, oh boy, it's so going to satisfy you. I find that there's a new nature inside of me, a new power. And as I yield to the Spirit, I can say thanks but no thanks and say yes to righteousness. This is the beautiful truth of, of, of the victorious Christian life. Not only that, not only does he give us power to overcome sin, but he gives us power now to serve God, right? He said that down at the end of verse six, we're no longer serving in the oldness of the letter. In other words, again, we don't have this list of rules that we're trying to keep in our own strength. Fail, pick yourself up, fail, pick yourself up, fail. Religion, 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 legalism, legalism, legalism. And finally, I'm discouraged. And finally, I'm like, see you later. And I never darken the door of a church again. No, no, no. We don't serve in the oldness of the letter. We serve in the newness of the spirit. And so as we yield to the spirit, here's what happens. He lives through us. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But who lives in me? Christ lives in me. And so as we yield to the risen Christ inside of us, here's what happens. He takes control, and now all of a sudden he is living his life through us. Often I'll ask people, how are you doing today? I ask Christians that question. You know what I hear so often? Oh, pastor, it's hard, but I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, some beautiful day, I'm gonna ask that question of, of somebody, some Christian, how are you doing? And I'm gonna hear this answer. Well, pastor, it's hard, but you know what I found? I have found that 
Because of Christ in my life, I have a new power inside of me. And whenever I yield to the spirit inside of me, he gives me a strength to overcome sin and serve God. So I guess it's not that bad after all. Now, when you tell me that and I pick myself up off the floor, I'll say, thank God, Lord, for what you're doing at Calvary Port St. Lucie. As we're meditating in the word of God, people's lives are being changed. They're overcoming sin in their life. There's no more. You know, as I was going on a prayer walk last Sunday after church, I was walking around and the spirit spoke right into my heart. And he said, pray that people in your church stay off the road that leads to death. Clear. And I started praying. Because some of you are on the road that leads to death. And that's not God's will for your life. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? <laughs> Come on, really? Certainly not. Right, because the Jews in Paul's day who rejected Jesus would say all this, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Paul's saying the law is sin. Paul's like, no. Verse seven, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, what's the 10th commandment? Go ahead and say the next four words. Here's your next point. God's law is good because it reveals our sin and shows us our desperate need for a savior. Throughout most of history, people did not realize they had cancer until they started having the symptoms of cancer. And then once the symptoms surfaced, it was only a matter of time. The cancer was in its late stages and they're, they're as good as dead. But then some genius invented the magnetic resonance imaging machine, MRI. Now they stick you in a tube, and lo and behold, these cancerous tumors are detected way before the symptoms ever surface. Okay? Now, what if I'm in that tube, and I come out, and later on, three days later, I go in the doctor's office, and we're standing in the room next to the MRI machine, and the doctor says, uh, uh, Mike, uh, I'm really sorry, but, but you have aggressive cancer. Can you imagine if I ran into that other room and I started beating on the MRI machine? You're so bad, I hate you. No, the MRI is good. Why? Because it revealed in me that I had cancer and I needed the attention of a physician immediately. Okay, listen, the law, God comes down 1500 B.C., Mountains shaking, smoke thick, trumpet blasting, lightning bolts, gives his will and 10 commands. That's good. That's holy. That's right. And one of the reasons it's good and holy and right is because that law reveals that I am a sinner. I've broken his law. Therefore, I am in desperate need of the great physician. And so I don't beat up on the law. No. I say, thank God for the law. Now, in Paul, it was the last law that got him. Here's what you got to understand. Paul was a Pharisee. And so before he met Jesus Christ, he looked at the Ten Commandments 
If you're with me, can you say amen here? He looked at the Ten Commandments as a list of external rules that he could keep to make himself approved or acceptable before God. He was trying to be justified by his works. And so he went through. You shall have no other God before me. Check. You shall not make or bow down to idols. Check. God's name in vain. Sabbath. You know, honor your mother. Check, 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 check. And then he got down to number 10. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. And Paul went to put a check, and he stopped, and his heart broke. You see, as a Pharisee, the first nine were not so hard for Paul to keep. External rules. He got down to number 10, and now it's dealing with the heart. And Paul said, that 10th commandment got me. Why? Because as a Pharisee, in his BC days, here's, here's what, what Paul experienced. He would look at others and what others had, and then he would become discontent with his life and want what they had. I don't know, maybe he looked over and saw some guy in the Sanhedrin who had a better house or a better camel. Look at that camel, man, that must be nice. I got this broken down donkey. Maybe he looked at some guy in the Sanhedrin's wife. Most scholars believe Paul was married and either his wife died or she left him. We don't know. Some people think she left him when he became a Christian. That's pure conjecture. We don't know that. It's not in the Bible. Maybe she left back when he was a Pharisee in his BC days. And maybe he's lonely and he looks at some guy and his wife and they have a happy marriage and he gets little kids running around and he's like, man, I'm discontent with my life. I want what he has. He broke the 10th commandment. Whatever it was, maybe he looked at some guy in the Sanhedrin. I want that position. What we know is that he tells us he broke the 10th commandment. Paul was put into a spiritual MRI and it detected sin in his heart and he saw his need for Jesus. Maybe some of you look around and you see what other people have. Nice job. Wow, nice things. Nice house, nice neighborhood. Nice car, must be nice. Little wife. Man, that guy's perfect. What a perfect life. And you look at your life and you become discontent with your life and you want what someone else has. Be careful you don't become angry at God. Be careful that you don't covet what other people have. Be content with your own life. Look at verses eight through 11. When he saw commandment number 10, he says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Before I really understood the 10th commandment, you know, it didn't bother me. But, verse nine, I was alive once with the law, I'm sorry, without the law, but when the commandment came, number 10, sin revived and I, what? Died. The wage of sin is death. Paul was a lawbreaker. He needed Jesus. Verse 10, and the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring, what? Death. The wage of sin is death. Verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it, it, what me? Killed me. Verse 12, therefore, because the law reveals our sin, 
the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. I want to reiterate that last point as the worship team comes up. God's law is good because it reveals our sin and it shows our desperate need for the Savior. Here's my challenge for you this week, first service. My challenge for you this week is to meditate in Romans chapter seven, to read ahead to the second half of Romans chapter seven. Maybe go to blueletterbible.com. It's on your church app, by the way. When you hit that Bible app, you'll see not just the Bible, but you'll also see Blue Letter Bible. It's a, it's a mega study Bible right there for free. Go to Blue Letter, type in Romans 7, begin to meditate on God's word. There's no response today. Here, here's your response this week. Get serious about God's word. Every single day, have an appointment with the Lord. And go to blueletterbible.com, meditate on God's word, see what some solid evangelical scholars are saying about whatever verse. Allow yourself as you meditate on God's word to dig up these gold nuggets of truth that'll absolutely change you and help you understand your position in Christ. Then, when you know, not just with your head, but with your heart, the amazing grace of God that you have an A, let that motivate you to walk with the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to impregnate you with spiritual life so that out of your life flows the fruit of the Spirit. Then at the end of the week, ask your spouse, how did I do, honey? And now everyone's looking at me like they wanna kill me because I added that part. Now ask, because here's the thing, we can deceive ourselves. Ask your spouse, Friday, Saturday, how did I do with the fruit of the Spirit this week? Did you see Christ living in and through me? And just see, don't let it become an argument. Humble yourself and ask the Lord to do this work in your life. Amen. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.